Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we're now on day 13 of the so-called Freedom Convoy, which has now turned into an occupation. Has Canada done this to ourselves by not being vigilant enough to recognize the dangers of white supremacy? What does the Truckers' Convoy reveal about the ties between politics, police, and law? Well, we'll talk about that as well. And Ontario has been patiently waiting for the province to confirm a childcare deal with the federal government for months now. But could a $10 a day deal actually hurt the childcare business? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, we're going to talk about what's going on at the bridge, of course, at Windsor, and what's still going on in downtown Ottawa. <laughs> Let's not forget that. I know we're focusing the last couple of days on the economic impact of uh, the takeover of the uh, Ambassador Bridge. Uh, but the people in downtown Ottawa are still basically being held hostage. Uh, they can't open their shops. They can't work. They can't do anything. But we'll get to that in a second. Windsor Mayor and uh, Police Chief uh, were talking to the media yesterday, and they said they're going to be asking the federal and provincial governments for help to deal with the convoy blockages along the Ambassador Bridge, which, of course, connects Detroit to Ontario. Uh, Global's Kyle Benning has the latest details. The Windsor Police Service says about 100 people in 50 to 75 vehicles have caused traffic jams along Canada's largest border crossing with the U.S. over the past three days. The police chief didn't lay out what resources would be in the request, but Drew Dilkins says that this protest can't last as long as ones in other parts of the country. You have 100 people who are holding hostage uh, part of our national economy, and that is why this cannot be allowed to be sustained for any length of time. Action will have to be taken to reopen this bridge. More than a quarter of all trade between Canada and the U.S. moves through the Ambassador Bridge. Delays were also present on highways near the border crossing in Sarnia, Ontario. Kyle Benning, Global News. question a lot of people, of course, are asking is how did we ever get to this point? I mean, we never thought this sort of thing was going to be happening in Canada. Uh, well, there have been signs along the way. Uh, for those who have been paying attention, our ne- next guest is one of those. Erica Eiffel is a columnist for The Hill Times who has written extensively about what is happening here. And, uh, well, some people paid attention and a lot of us didn't. Uh, but we're pleased to welcome Erica to the program to talk about this. Erica, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us this morning. Good morning. I've read some of your stuff. You don't pull any punches, uh, which is making for interesting reading and, and very <laughs> poignant. Uh, well, that's, that's, it's an asset in this business these days, especially given some of the things that, uh, that are happening in, in broadcasting and in the media in general. Uh, why weren't we paying attention? You've been writing about this. I mean, anybody who watched uh, January 6th in the, in the nation's capital down in the States last year and said, oh, that'll never happen here. Uh, I, I, I know you mentioned the piece that you wrote yesterday. You, you don't want to say I told you so, but you told us so. I did. And, you know, let's go back to um, January 2017 and what happened then. And that was the Quebec shootings. And so... Mm-hmm. We didn't take that seriously then. And we thought because somehow, I don't know why we think all of a sudden the 49th parallel is a fortress because it never has been. Um, we, we somehow thought that we were better off. We were smug because the United States had Donald Trump as though um, the same forces don't exist here and as though it's not organized either. And so um, I wrote a piece in September, actually, that was called Canada isn't ready for what's next. And it was all about white supremacy and the growing threat of white supremacy and about 
the infiltration of our political systems, of our systems. And so, um, yeah, I hate to say it, but I did. And the thing about me, I do write, <laughs> I am prolific as a writer, but I always bring receipts. I always bring research. I always bring, um, you know, previous incidents and create a story. It's not as though um, I came up with these things. There are a lot of places that have done research, that have done the research, that have shown that global white supremacy is a rising threat. And it has been so for the past, I would say, five to 10 years. In the piece that you just referenced, uh, one line here I just want our listeners to be aware of. Uh, you write, hate doesn't stay bottled up. It's explosive and reveals itself in giant waves of overwhelming violence before the recipients or observers of that violence can absorb what's happening. And it's exploding. Uh, and it is exploding in Windsor. It's exploding in Ottawa. But we should, we should have seen this coming. How many times have we read stories and, and talked to commentators about the infiltration into the military and in some police services? Uh, with white supremacists. Uh, you know, the Proud Boys actually started in Canada, for heaven's sakes. I mean, uh, yeah. how can we think that we're, you know, that we're immune to this sort of thing? Well, look at Pat Patrick Matthews, who's spending time in uh, a U.S. prison right now because he wanted to start uh, a, a race-like war. I mean, these aren't, these aren't isolated incidents. When we string them together, they're actually quite familiar. Three years ago, um, United We Roll came to Ottawa, and I was there for that too. And it had the same overtones, the same tenor, the same sort of removal of government tenor. But that was just a warm-up. This, I don't know if this is the warm-up or the end goal. I don't think this is the end goal, which should scare us all. But the ease with which they are able to take over and disrupt institutions and, and authority is breathtaking. And it just goes to show how porous our, um, our, our law enforcement and our, how porous these structures are, actually. I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that these um, sort of liber liberal democratic structures aren't that strong. And they're not strong enough to withstand the onslaught of this type of impending violence, of intimidation, of, um, of fear. And I think that in, like in downtown Ottawa, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of intimidation. And that is how you get control of people and of, of areas. So I, I, again, I, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there were a lot of sort of flashpoints up, you know, coming up to what happens now. But my question is, where do we go from here? So now that we know this can happen, we can't unring this bell. So where do we go from here? Are we uh, some observations here? And, and you see this firsthand, and you've been writing about this for quite some time. Were we, I, I think there's a, a strong argument to be made that we were, we were naive about this, to think, you know, this, this will never happen here. Our institutions are stronger. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we seem blinded by this, and we seem to be in a still, I think, even after we've watched what happened in Ottawa and what's happening in Windsor, uh, we're still in a sense of denial here. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. we still get reports. I Look, at every time I bring this up, I get 
dozens and dozens of emails say, I was there, you know, I was in Ottawa, or I've got a cousin. There's none of the swastikas going on. I said, I saw what I saw. But the, they're there. The denial. <laughs> yeah. We all saw them. <laughs> they're there. They, uh, these are, and, and you've seen the pictures they post on, on, on social media, Erica, uh, of, of, you know, we're just nice, friendly people. We're just gathered here. We're playing street hockey. How Canadian is that? Uh, you know, they don't exactly. want to talk about the intimidation and the yelling and screaming and that people in the downtown core are afraid to go to the store right now because they might yeah. be approached and the by some assaults, of these people. And the fact that one of them's tried to start a building on fire, <laughs> like... I mean, that's violence, <laughs> you know. And and what's 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 killing me is the hair splitting that's being done. Well, it's not really it's not really white supremacists. They're just a couple. It's not really like it's the hair splitting that we're doing to to uphold the toxic positivity of denial. And um, you know that's how we get here. You know, if you, I think at the uh, at the top of the show, you were like, "Well, how did we get here?" Well, we were in denial, and we continue to be in denial. I mean, I saw the Globe and Mail editorial board was was uh, you know wrote an op ed and basically said this is fine, like <laughs> you know, there's no violence, there's violence, and so um, then we have to ask ourselves, whose violence are we willing to accept, and why are we willing to accept violence from them? Well, like there's a lot of introspection that we have to do as a country. No kidding. Yeah. And and as you to your point about what we do going forward, I mean, you know, this again, I don't mean to be trite by dragging out old cliches, but we can't solve a problem until we actually admit that there is a problem. Uh, And and I don't know that a lot of us have done that yet. And I I, listen, I I took some heat from some of my media colleagues when yesterday. Uh, when I called some of them out, I said, "You part of uh, the media here is is partially to blame." I said, "Because you mm-hmm. you enabled them." You know, when this whole thing started, you know, the, the, how many people and how many reports did you say whether, "Well, this is the Freedom Caravan." It was not a Freedom Caravan from the mm-hmm. get go. It wasn't a Freedom Caravan. Exactly. These groups that, that you've identified in your piece look for situations like that. We know there are people that are against vaccinations. We get that, and we know that there are people that just hate Justin Trudeau or hate any form of government. We know that too. So these people latch on to something like that. And like I say, before these guys crossed the BC border, they had co-opted this whole movement. Yeah. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. There is legitimate criticism sure. of pandemic, res- the pandemic response, vaccine mandates, Omicron. I've written them myself. Okay. However, this is not that. This is something else. And, you know, if if we continue to put our head in the sa- our heads in the sand, then I don't know where democracy goes from here. Because these are people who literally want to overthrow the government and install themselves in charge. And I just want to put um, a little f- a little tidbit out there. Before the coup in Chile, it was it was uh, there was a truckers protest. And that was a catalyst for that, for the overthrowing of that government. So this is not, I'm not saying that that's going to happen here. I'm just saying that there are elements and that are familiar. If you know a little bit of history, there are elements that are familiar that people can see, and it's not going to get better. And um, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but it's true. We cannot unring this bell. So where do we go from here? 
You know, when you call it, and, and not you but specifically, but when, when people refer to this, for instance, as a trucker's protest, we, we already know that, for instance, the trucking industry is condemning this. 90% of the truckers are uh, vaccinated and trying to work. As a matter of fact, the, the, the terrible situation in Windsor at the Ambassador Bridge right now is basically not allowing those people to do their job. Uh, and mm -hmm. they're disrupting the supply chain. So who the hell are they representing? They're not representing the trucking industry. Or no, are these just not. people that are these just people that have extremist points of views that happen to be truck drivers? But but the organizers are not truck drivers, from what no, I understand. Aren't. So if they're not truck drivers, they're dancing with the alt right, or they are alt right because you know one of them was in that same United We Roll convoy that we're that I was talking about. They're not truck drivers. They're not. Um, they're 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 people who. Um, are active in far right organizations. Plus, there's been a lot of there's a whole bunch of foreign money that's poured into this. With all of that, the, you know, if we continue to ignore this, I, I just wonder if we deserve what we get, because those three points makes this concerning. And I'm not even talking about <clears throat> the um, the authoritarian nature of this. Those three points are enough. So what more do we have to say? What more do we have to do to be taken seriously? Here's the other thing. How is it that where's the intelligence on these groups and on these people? Because as I wrote before, the RCMP poured a lot of resources into Project Sitka, which they used to surveil indigenous protesters they determined were a threat so why don't we have something analogous for far-right organizations where was that the whole internet knew that they were coming for days before they came where was the planning where was none, jim watson none, well none, none that we know anyway you know why why we all knew this was twitter knew this was coming for i, I kid you not four days before they actually came at least if not a week. I, I know we're we're almost out of time, uh, but I just you did touch on something in the piece that I just wanted to get a comment on you for what mm. in the next sixty or seventy seconds. Uh, political leadership or lack of uh, there seem to be developing into two camps here right now. Some hand wringing and you know we're outraged by this, but not much in the way of action. Uh, and others who I think disgustingly are are encouraging these people uh, for their own political purposes, which is, which is you know, I, I, unbelievable that they would simply put the best interests of the country behind uh, their own political interests and maybe their own ideological views. Well, we're not that much different from the states, are we? Because that's not. what's happened to the Republican Party. And the conservatives, I wrote about when January 6th happened, I wrote about this. I talked about it on... Our, my podcast, the Bad and Bitchy podcast. I did a whole thing about this, about how the conservative party has been co-opting sort of these, these, these tactics of the Republican party and the Republican party has, has sold their soul to the far right. So um, this is, we are not different. We're just slower. So what happens in America just happens in Canada five years later. Funny enough, these days, it doesn't even take that long. Not and what anymore. social no. media has done is it has provided the infrastructure for these people to organize and to spread disinformation. 
How much of disinformation comes from far right? How much disinformation from COVID comes from the far right? Because that's a tactic that they used that I wrote about too in 2020. And so, I, you know, all of these pieces can be sort of stitched together to give us an idea of what the tactics are, who these people are, where the funding goes, if we actually just look. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, I'm going to leave it there, but I'm going to direct our listeners once again. You can go to hilltimes.com to uh, to read uh, Erica's uh, latest piece. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, there's the uh, there's the podcast, and uh, you can also follow her, Erica, at notinmycolor.com uh, to get some insight into this. Thank you so much for the time. Great talking with you today. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I hope. Thank you. Take care. Erica, I feel columnist for the Hill Times. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to draw your attention to a, an interesting essay that uh, I saw on theconversation.com, which is our great website to uh, get some feedback and some perspective on some of the issues of the day. And certainly what's going on in Windsor and Ottawa is probably the issue of the day for most of us these days. Uh, anyway, uh, the piece is called uh, What the Freedom Convoy, quote unquote, reveals about the ties among politics, police and the law. Uh, the author of the piece is uh, Temi Topo-Riola, who is an associate professor at the Center for Criminological Research at the University of Alberta. Uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, professor, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Bill. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, it's it's very timely, as you might expect, uh, the analogies that you've drawn here uh, and some historical perspective on this, too, about, uh, you know, we've seen uh, and we just talked about, you know, some of the, the Nazi symbols that we've seen in some of these protests, the flags. Uh, some of the language, some of the rhetoric that's going on back and forth. I, I guess the first question is, your perspective, what is going on here? Uh, well, um, it, it's it's a mix of, of variables, um, and this goes beyond policing. We have an infusion of, of politics uh, into this. Um, and so uh, the, the political capital of these individuals uh, is being uh, harvested uh, by some of our politicians. And so what, what we're seeing is essentially a superficial law enforcement paralysis. Uh, Canadian police are some of the most effective and some of the most well-respected organizations in the world. Uh, and therefore, uh, this isn't as a result of the failure of the average police officers on the streets. This is as a result of uh, ineffective anticipation uh, of the uh, leaders of police services uh, in Ottawa and, and across the country where a lot of these protests are, are occurring. Uh, and uh, the decision of some of the political elite um, to play uh, games uh, with, with this crisis. Well, yeah, you mentioned that in the piece in the conversation where you uh, you actually reference uh, Candace Bergen, who's now the interim uh, leader of the uh, the federal conservative party, who uh, we know from the reports that we've seen uh, that uh, before she actually took over the party, of course, uh, she encouraged then leader Aaron O'Toole uh, to meet with some of the protesting truckers and, and actually has encouraged the truckers to keep this on. And when I shout the truckers because they're not just truckers in this thing uh, to make this a political issue. And she used the, the now classic line. Uh, and I'm glad you quoted it here, Professor. Uh, there are good people on both sides, uh, which, of course, digs up an awful lot of memories of Donald Trump after Charlottesville about what was going on there uh, and, and the shock and horror that we had. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not one to start suggesting she's channeling Donald Trump. Uh, but boy, you know, if it walks <laughs> like a duck and quacks like a duck. Right. Uh, and, and the the uh, rhetorical gymnastics um, uh, is, is quite similar. Uh, there's no there's no doubt in that. 
uh, and, and it is troublesome uh, on multiple levels uh, because this was part of the kind of rhetoric that brought um, the January 6th invasion uh, of, of the U.S. Capitol. Uh, and we don't want uh, that kind of uh, uh, event uh, in, in Canada. Now, but, but it, it also speaks to um, the fact that policing is both an art and a science. And therefore, there are aspects of incidents like uh, the uh, January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol and what we're witnessing in Ottawa uh, that are, in fact, beyond the control of police services. So things like uh, the uh, the leadership or lack thereof of, of uh, such protest movements, uh, their willingness to, nego- uh, to engage in negotiations, um, the internal dynamics of such movements and the tactics they choose to adopt. Uh, the police cannot always uh, gain full control of that. Uh, however, um, those are in contradistinction to the level of preparedness of police services, their assessment of the threat level, their crafting of effective response and available human and material resources vis-a-vis dealing with the protest. Um, so the Freedom Convoy was weeks in the making. Uh, and therefore, there was really no um, surprise element there. But it does seem that one side was prepared and the other uh, was not. Uh, and so what we're witnessing is this um, toxic cocktail between um, political opportunism and law enforcement uh, paralysis, a superficial uh, law enforcement paralysis. Because once again, I do believe um, that had this crisis been uh, critically analyzed for what it was uh, and, and anticipated, uh, we would not have the situation we have now in Ottawa and, and across uh, Canada. The other point I would like to mention, Bill, uh, concerns um, the way that issues like this work their way um, through the criminal justice system. Yeah, I uh, and I'm reminded. Up. Sorry, it's it's an it's an essential piece of your of your essay. I'm glad you brought that up. Awesome. So now the, a U.S. judge uh, was so upset by the tepid uh, charges filed against the, those who invaded the U.S. Capitol that she asked the justice officials whether they thought these individuals were simply trespassers because the charges suggested that's the way they were being treated. Again. What we're seeing is just a glimpse of the underbelly of the criminal justice system. There is a tendency, unfortunately, to treat right-wing actors, especially uh, political actors on the streets and and posting all kinds of uh, uh, messages, hateful rhetoric or on chat boards and and carrying out all kinds of acts on the streets um, as sort of just boys being boys. And they, they tend not to be taken uh, seriously, and so that lack of anticipation, that um, uh, that tendency to treat such actions with kids' gloves, uh, is, is essentially what we're witnessing today uh, across Canada. Part of the uh, the discussion, uh, which is, I guess has morphed into a debate now, uh, in this country, though, Professor, uh, has to do with the the right to protest, and and I, I agree that we have the right to protest. We should protest. Uh, when we see something wrong or we disagree with some political decisions. Uh, I think it's not just a right. I think it's an obligation in some circles. But the the gray area here is where is that line between protest and insurrection? I don't know that law enforcement knows it. Uh, I don't know that we as a, as a, as a public know where that line is. It seems to be, you know, a, a very arbitrary line. We know there's a line there, but we don't seem to know where it is or where to apply it. 
Right, and and this is part of the the human condition, particularly in uh, Western liberal democratic societies, uh, where we pride ourselves in our openness, where we pride ourselves uh, in this ethos of of freedom and and individual liberties, uh, and therefore um, it is always uh, a becoming rather than a being. In other words, uh, an art that is uh, regularly being drawn and redrawn. Uh, on the one hand, we want to maintain individual liberties and freedoms, but on the other hand, we know that there are times when there could be real threat to law and order. Uh, and I, it, it is surprising, and, and this is why this now ought to be treated as a matter of national security, that the prime minister uh, and his family have since been moved from their official residence to an undisclosed location. Uh, I do not think that uh, security agents and agencies uh, take such action uh, uh, just for the sake of it. Uh, and we may never know the full details of the security reports around that decision, uh, perhaps not until the, the prime minister writes uh, his memoir a, a few years from now. So, so this has gone beyond policing. This now has to be treated as a potential uh, national security threat. Now, it doesn't mean that we should prevent people from protesting a priori. However, uh, security agents uh, and agencies need to do a better job of uh, anticipation and taking rhetoric by right-wing extremists and right-wing groups uh, more seriously than we've ever done. Uh, and here I'm reminded of the incel rebellion in the likes of Alex uh, Minessian uh, in, in Toronto. For weeks and months on end, this individual had been posting all kinds of things online. Uh, and we know that law enforcement agents are regularly monitoring some of these uh, chats forums. But there is a, a lapse between uh, observed violent rhetoric and um, lawful action by uh, policing organizations. And we need to bridge that gap uh, and act swiftly and, and ensure that we are paying the same kind of attention that we pay to the traditional kinds of terrorist threats, traditional kinds of security threats that uh, it, it is about time we, we began to uh, take right-wing ex extremism uh, very seriously. But, but therein lies the problem. I just, you know, talking about that gray area and where that line is, it's, it's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, I mean, if you if, if you know if you if you don't like government, if you don't like the fact that governments have the the ability to to impose laws and regulations, which is really the basis of our democracy, uh, you're going to think that these guys are just you know protesting. Uh, if you are, are, you know what's, what's that old cliche? Uh, you're right to throw a punch and be stops at my nose. Uh, when you're causing damage like this, when you're causing people not to be able to go to work uh, because of, of this protest that's going on in Windsor right now, where, you know, auto plants are laying people off, uh, people in downtown Ottawa can't go to work uh, because of the problems that are going on there. Uh, that, that That is crossing that line, isn't it? It is crossing the line. Um, and uh, for me, the main surprise was that those trucks were allowed to move in. And we're talking hundreds of trucks here, Bill. Uh, they were allowed to move into downtown Ottawa and just like that. Now, the number of roads leading to downtown Ottawa is not infinite. And so the, the convoy or convoys could have been uh, anticipated and prevented from entering uh, downtown. 
And now what we have is both a logistical and national security nightmare because of the proximity to um, the, the capital, uh, to the extent where the, the sergeants at harms uh, of parliament had to inform parliamentarians um, to try to change residence, move away from their exactly. usual residence uh, for their own safety. Uh, that is pretty serious. Um, and my point is, it should not have come to this. Exactly. To Professor, this because- we're, we're going to have to leave it right there. I've got uh, got to move on. I've got a couple of things that just come across my desk here. Uh, I'll direct people once again to conversation.com uh, slash business uh, to get a copy of your essay. Thank you so much, Professor. It was a pleasure having you on the program today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Pivot for a couple of minutes here into daycare. This is a very important issue, uh, and it's worth repeating once again that, of course, uh, during the federal election last year, the federal government uh, talked about uh, a national daycare program. They had already started the ball rolling on that. Well, as we sit here this morning, uh, Ontario is the only jurisdiction in the country that has not signed on to the deal now. Education Minister Stephen Lecce was asked why Ontario still doesn't have a, a deal, and he says, well, negotiations take time. I want families to know we are determined to get this deal. It must be a fair deal, a good deal for Ontario families, taxpayers, and for our children. And the Premier and I will continue to negotiate uh, with one intention, which is delivering that deal as soon as possible so we can get these fees down and create certainty for all families uh, that are longing to uh, uh, get their kids in a childcare system that's accessible and affordable. Well, and we heard the Premier uh, mention that they're very, very, very close. I think that was the phrase that he used a couple of days ago. Uh, I don't hear Mr. Le- Minister Lecce being quite as optimistic about that. Uh, but the, to, to suggest there's a need here is, is a massive understatement. Uh, there's an interesting piece, uh, op-end piece, in, uh, that uh, we need to talk about. It's in the Toronto Star just a little while ago that talks about uh, the daycare program and the impact it's going to have because there's a lot of, uh, of speculation about the impact this is going to have on the existing industry. Uh, and to talk to us about that, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Armin Yalitsen, who is an economist at Atkinson Fellow of the Future of Workers. Uh, Armin, first of all, thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. It's a really big pleasure being with you, Bill. A great piece, by the way, in the Star. I think it, t- it touches on a lot of the very important points here. And, and maybe first and foremost, we'll cover some of these off, of course, uh, is the impact this is going to have. Some are suggesting, and as a matter of fact, even some of the people in uh, Mr. Lecce's uh, department uh, in in the education ministry here in Ontario, was suggesting that the deal that Ottawa is presenting right now would actually be harmful to the existing daycare session. Yeah, you address that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I think um, we have this really remarkable situation where last week, um, sorry, two weeks ago, I wrote an op-ed piece talking about what could be the reason for the delay in the last province or territory, the last jurisdiction in the country failing to sign on to a deal that would give Ontario's government over $10 billion to reduce fees in the jurisdiction where childcare fees are the highest. You know that people are just like eyeing what's happening in other jurisdictions and saying, what's wrong with us? Why can't we get cheaper childcare? What's the holdup? And so I did some math on what could be the reasons But literally within 24 hours, the federal side of the bargaining table said, we're not close to a deal. They don't have a plan. (laughs) What else is 
It's new. There has been no plan, no, no articulated plan for many things, including the reopening of schools, including uh, the handling of the pandemic that we are being told now, now that Omicron wave is almost over, that there is a plan that takes us to mid-March. Uh, so I, I don't have a lot of faith that there is a plan or that the negotiations are within reach. But I think that the point of uh, the column that I just wrote in the Toronto Star is uh, now people are saying it's going to hurt business and that's the reason they're dragging in their feet. Absolutely untrue. There has never been a better time to be a childcare business in the country, particularly if you're licensed. But what is true is the majority of childcare providers are not licensed. And still, it doesn't hurt them, but it doesn't help them. The whole point of this strategy is to encourage more people to provide care in a licensed and regulated system so we can reduce costs, reduce operating costs for the operators, reduce fees for the parents, and improve quality for the kids. What's not to love? Well, that and, and we've been talking about that too. And to your point, by the way, uh, Minister Gould was on our program, I guess, about a week or so ago, and, and reiterated that same point that uh, that they want a game plan. You know, you know you're not going to get a blank check from the federal government. How are you going to spend it? She says every other province, every other territory has supplied that game plan. Here's where the money's going to go. Ontario hasn't done that yet, which and you, which begs the question: Why not? Uh, you know, what's what's going on here? Do you just want you know. There's got to be some rationale here and some some partnership here, and, and that seems to be on the on the short side. But you made it. There's a point here I wanted to jump on because I think it, it mm-hmm. underscores what you were just saying here. Uh, for for those who are contending that this is going to be bad for Ontario, uh, you boil this right down to the simple supply and demand. Uh, there's we simply don't have enough daycare spaces now, uh, and we're not going to be inundated with them next week. So in other words, people think this is going to blow some people out of the water where they can't compete anymore is is really a fallacy. A hundred percent it is. For example, um, province-wide, we've got about 35% of our uh, infants to uh, preschoolers, five-year-olds, who have access to licensed care. A bunch more kids get care through these unlicensed facilities, by which I mean, you know, the lady down the street, maybe a mom that has uh, a preschooler as well and is willing to pick up one or two other kids kids to take care of while somebody else goes to work or a retired lady. Those people are unincorporated. They should not be getting public funds because we don't know what they do with them. Like they're in and out of business. Like StatsCan tried to do an assessment of how many businesses like this are there. You can tell that it's going to be a vanishingly difficult task to do because some of them are totally off grid. They operate on a cash per child basis. Uh, They never file taxes based on that. So the numbers that we do have are based on people that are reporting income on their tax files. Some of them are incorporated businesses and some of them aren't. 91% of the people providing childcare in Ontario are unincorporated businesses, but they make really small amounts of money, like less than $10,000 a year, most of them. So really the money is made in uh, on these exorbitant fees that parents are paying in for-profit, not-for-profit, and public facilities. The public facilities are the cheapest and the best quality. Uh, But the for-profit and not-for-profit providers, which include things like the YWCA, it includes mom shops, mom and pop shops, but mostly mom shops, that are providing for-profit care, which is kind of a slippery definition, but it also includes the chains, you know, the big box chains. Uh, We don't have a lot of those in Ontario. Uh, strikingly, the places where we have the most of them are in conservative ridings. So maybe that's part of what's going on uh, with the, because they can't expand under the federal 
strategy, they will get money. They're not cut out of money to reduce costs so they can reduce fees and improve uh, their, their ability to attract and retain staff. These are really critical things that are available to every single childcare operator right now that is licensed. But they, uh, under this plan in other jurisdictions anyway, uh, the idea is not to expand the for-profit market share in this sector. So we don't turn childcare into another long-term care sector, which cares that's more an about important, that's an important. That's an important comparator, isn't it? Uh, because we've been talking, well, for the last three years, we probably should have been talking about this for the last 23 years, uh, about the deplorable condition yeah. of many of the long-term care facilities. And and notwithstanding the fact that some people in government want to deny this, uh, the, the for-profit aspect of this, and the majority of long-term care homes in province of Ontario are for-profit, uh, are contributors to some of the problems here. That's not to suggest they're all bad apples, but I mean, that's where the predominance of the opinions. You don't want to see that happen to the child care business, do you? Oh, absolutely not. Look, this is our most precious asset, is the nurturing and the shaping of the lives of the next group of people entering uh, adulthood. And we know the brain is most plastic from the ages of infancy to five years old. They, you can learn more languages, you can learn math. Like With the right pedagogy, you can be a better learner and adapter, but also that's the, that's the age where if you're cared for really well, um, then you are really a resilient human being to any of the shocks that come forward. And of course, everybody wants parents to be that caregiver, the one that helps their child learn and the one that nurtures their child with love. And we all know that that doesn't happen in every family. So we want every child to have that opportunity at, at least for a few hours a day. Um, and because I am the fellow on the future of workers for the Atkinson Foundation. And I think we don't talk about this enough. Um, I don't know how old you are, Bill, but I'm a, I'm a boomer. And the boomers are uh, flocking out of the labor market like they flocked into it in the 60s and 70s. I'm sorry, in the 70s and 80s. We had, we've been dealing with a labor surplus situation for about half a century, definitely for 40 years, where there's been more workers than there have been job openings, not only because the boomers were the largest age cohort to come onto the stage ever in history, but because women thought they were just as good as men. So we had a double surplus um, impact. As we leave the labor market, and because fertility rates have been falling, I shouldn't say fertility rates, I should say birth rates. We kind of mix up the terms, but what people will understand is people are having fewer babies. And that has been the case for decades. So fewer people coming in, more people leaving. The only solution is to maximize the potential of that next generation. And we're not doing it. We have no plan to do it. And this has been such a slow moving train. You have seen it coming since the 60s and we have absolutely no strategy for it. This early learning and childcare strategy is a baby step towards a strategy where we maximize the potential of everybody we do have that's young so that they can lift up everybody's quality of life. That's who lifts up the quality of life of the elderly and the children is the working age population. You're going to shrink that cohort to the smallest we've seen in half a century. And that's going to last for 30 or 40 years forward. You better have a plan on how you're maximizing the potential of that group. Well, because the bottom line question here, I guess, and it goes right into your wheelhouse, I guess, here really, I mean, 
uh, how do you attract people to the industry? I mean, it's all well and good for government to say we're we're going to create new spaces. Uh, uh, you need staff too, and 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 as you mentioned in the op-ed piece, I mean, you know, we we pay garbage collectors and pet groomers more than we paid childcare workers, and and that's not a, a slam at, at garbage collectors or, or groomers. The fact is, is that we've got some catching up to do, and and recognition, I guess, of the important role that the people in this industry play uh, when it comes to our children, and we haven't done that yet. You're absolutely right, Bill, that um, people are leaving the industry because they're treated so poorly. There are many instances right now of, you know, capacity being down throughout the sector. We're nowhere near, near where we were before the pandemic hit, much less expanding. Um, but uh, in places where capacity is being maintained, it's often, just like in healthcare, childcare workers working 12-hour shifts and getting paid close to the minimum wage and not getting PPE, not getting access, access to rapid tests, the whole nine yards. It's just like the work is totally devalued, which is odd because at the very beginning of the pandemic, the provincial government provided free round-the-clock care for emergency care workers. It was a testament to how essential this social infrastructure is to the essential economy. You can't get to work unless these people are working. We've seen that over and over again. In fact, when you look at the stats in Ontario, um, the group that has not recovered from the she session yet is women aged 55 and older. And we don't know exactly why they have dropped out, but they've completely dropped out of the labor market. And some share of them are the grandmas trying to help their own kids not lose their jobs because there is no childcare and there was no reliable schools for the longest time in the pandemic. So we know this care is critical. And we know that in this age group, before six years old, is the most vulnerable and most potentially rewarding period of developing a child's life, which stays with them their entire life. Why would you want to screw around with that? Why wouldn't you want qualified people in place who are attracted and retained because their wages and working conditions are improved from where they are now, where they're essential, but essentially disposable to the system? You, that's not a sustainable business model. Well, for those that have identified the problem, they've got to look, as you mentioned in the last paragraph of your piece here, uh, this is a golden opportunity for them to address this. I mean, there's federal money available right now that, that they've been crying for for years and years now. Uh, and and I, I know there's some politics, and this is politics in just about every decision. I, we, we get that. Uh, but, you know, when people like Jason Kenney and Scott Moe, uh, who are hardly friends of the prime minister, said, yeah, this is the best deal for our people, uh, you got to put politics aside and simply look at it this way. And I'm hoping uh, that uh, that the, the decision makers at Queen's Park are going to see it that way as well. I'm with you, though it is perplexing to me that this is seems to have boiled down to a political decision that they are not going to gain a base by doing this um, and they won't lose their base by not doing it. I don't know what their calculus is. Uh, it is the most boneheaded logic I have ever heard of because these people want us to be open for business too. You can't be open for business if you've got a bottleneck, bottleneck in the system. Prior to the pandemic, half of payroll was women. Half of payroll is no longer women. That's lost purchasing power for the other businesses that don't give a shit about kids, to be quite honest. They don't yeah. care whether you've got childcare or not, but they do care if they've got business and they've got less business when fewer women are working. Well, it's got to happen, and uh, hopefully somebody in, in Queen's Park is reading the piece that uh, the Star published that you uh, authored, and uh, we'll continue the conversation in this program. You can count on that as well. Armin, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. I really do appreciate it. Super appreciate it that you invited me, Bill. Love your Take show. Take care. Thank you so much. Take care now. The 
Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.